Hello all you film freaks and movie maniacs out there. My name is Nolan Carr and I'd like to welcome you to the go-to podcast for all things cinema. But before you can ask any questions, just sit back, relax, as I present to you a Strawline Studio Productions Critiquing with Carr. And welcome everyone to episode number three of Critiquing with Carr. I'm so happy and excited you're back with me for another edition of the show and our second edition, our second edition of Memorable Movie Mondays. And like the last two reviews we did of Shawshank Redemption and Godfather 1, we have another great movie to review, and that is the one only The Dark Knight. Woo! Yeah, baby! That's what I've been waiting for! And as I just said, what a great movie this is. But I'll save all the details on why I like this film and other things like that later on in this video. If you've enjoyed the last two reviews and enjoyed the one you're currently tuning into, whether it's on the visual or audio platforms, do us a huge favor here at Starlink Production Studios. Subscribe, comment, share, follow, all that great stuff so you can help continue to grow the podcast as we're just starting out, as well as follow on Instagram at Critiquing with Car. That helps us continue to build this program as much as I want to do it as I did with the other podcast I did called Nolan Car Night Show. As these usually go, what I like to do is say who was behind the camera that made this possible, as well as who's in front of the camera to make this possible, some other things like the budget it had, how it did in the box office the competition it had, as it may be on a top 10 list of other films that came out in 2008. Other things such as who was the cinematographer, who helped distribute the film, when it was released, as well as my like list, my dislike list, my final review, and then my ranking on the 10 Diamond Days. If you're all ready, I guess we should start. Similar to my other reviews I did of Shawshank and Godfather 1, sometimes the director of these films pulls not just singular duty, but double duty, that's not the case with this film, as Christopher Nolan pulls quadruple duty. That's right. Not just singular duty, double duty, or triple duty, but quadruple duty. He is the director of the film. He is one of the co-screenwriters of the film, along with his brother Jonathan. He is one of the people who created the story of this film, as well as one of the four producers of this film. How one like himself does it, especially after he just recently, as of January 10th of 2024, directed Oppenheimer and won a Golden Globe for the award or Oscar, whatever it is, he has pulled quadruple duty and he brilliantly does it with this film, as if that wasn't stressful enough with just one role, he does it three more times on top of that. As I also mentioned in my other reviews, I also like to say who's in the cast. And also compared to my other film, other films I've reviewed, although some of those actors are in their first roles with the film, or some of them may not be in other films compared to the ones who are the stars of the film, like Shawshank, or as popular as the two co-stars of the film, this film, there are a lot of actors in this movie who are hitting their strides within the last few movies that they've done up until this one, or this is a big peak moment in their career, being part of a Christopher Nolan DC comic Batman type of movie. Starting off, we have Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne and Batman, Michael Caine as Alfred Pennyworth, Heath Ledger as the Joker, Gary Oldman as James Gordon, Aaron Eckhart as Harvey Dent and Two-Face, Maggie Gyllenhaal as Rachel Dawes, Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox, Eric Roberts as Sal Maroney, Michael J. White as Gamble, Richie Coster as the Chechen, Jin Han as Lau, Colin McFarlane as Commissioner Gillian B. Loeb, Ken Zarabaka as Detective Stevens, Ron Dean as Detective Wirtz, Monique Gabriella Kernan as Detective Anna Ramirez, Philip Bullock as Murphy, Joshua Hardo as Coleman Reese, Anthony Michael Hall as Mike Engel, Esther Carbonell as Mayor Anthony Garcia, William Fitchner as the bank manager, India Rodriguez Teresina as Judge Cirillo, Tom Tiny Lister Jr. as a prisoner, Beatrice Rosen as Wayne's Russian ballerina date, 
David Dust Malchian as Thomas Schiff, Linda McGraw as Barbara Gordon, Nathan Gamble as James Gordon Jr., Hannah Gunn as James Gordon's daughter, Killian Murphy as Jonathan Crane and Scarecrow, Matt Skiba as himself, and U.S. Senator Patrick Lee as himself as well. The cinematographer for this film was Wally Fister. It was edited by Lee Smith. The music was by Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard. The production companies were Warner Bros. Pictures, Legendary Pictures, and Cinecopy. And actually, Warner Bros. was also pulling double duty as the distributor of this film as well. It had a local release date of July 14th, 2008 in New York City, a national release of July 18th, 2008 in the United States, and a United Kingdom release date of July 25th, 2008. Film's runtime is just over two and a half hours at 152 minutes. It is a U.S. and United Kingdom production, so of course they speak English in the film. Its budget was just a little amount of $185 million, and it made just over a billion dollars at $1.006 billion. And now it comes time to one of my two favorite moments of these reviews, and that is when I list off the top 10 highest grossing films of 2008. And granted, not every film I'm going to be reviewing in this podcast is released in 2008, but this list is regarding what film I'm reviewing and what year it came out in its competition. I mean, number 10 is Twilight. Robert Pattinson is the lead, and it made a worldwide gross of $393,617,000. $51. Coming at number nine is Wally with Ben Burt as the lead actor and it had a worldwide gross of $521,311,860. Coming at number eight is Iron Man with Robert Downey Jr. as the lead and it had a worldwide gross of $585,366,747. Coming at number seven was Quantum of Solace. Daniel Craig was the lead actor and had a worldwide gross of $586,090,000. $727. Meet number six is Madagascar Escape to Africa. Ben Stiller was the lead. And it had a worldwide gross of $603,900,354. Coming number five was Mamma Mia with Meryl Streep as the lead. And it had a worldwide gross of $615,874,264. Coming at number four was Hancock. Will Smith was the lead. And it had a worldwide gross of $629,443,428. Coming at number three was Kung Fu Panda. Jack Black was the lead, and it had a worldwide gross of $631,744,560. Coming at number two was Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, with Harrison Ford as the lead, and it had a worldwide gross of $786,635,413. And coming in at number one was The Dark Knight, with Christian Bale as the lead actor, and it had a worldwide gross of $1.006 billion. Now, just a few seconds ago, when I mentioned that the top 10 list reading was one of my favorite parts, this now is my favorite part what I'm about to do, and that is listing off my likes and dislikes of this film. Hopefully you agree to some of them. You may disagree to a lot of them, but that's the beauty of doing this. We have our own opinions and thoughts of what we think is good in terms of a movie, TV show, music, or anything else in life. But enough of that, let's begin. One of my favorite things of this film, and I'll be saying favorites a lot, is the pacing. You know, when you compare The Dark Knight to The Godfather, The Godfather is so much more slower than Dark Knight. But that's okay, because overall, The Godfather is still a really great story, even a better story in some aspects for the most part. However, with this film and the pacing that it has, it gives you two options. One, you're always hooked in in that aspect. There's never a point where you're like, oh, they really skimmed through that too much, or they didn't touch upon this enough. There's that aspect where you're always hooked in. But also, in that aspect, if you're not paying attention... And you look away for a few minutes and you come back, you're lost and you got to replay and waste all that time doing that to catch up. 
And that's the beautiful thing about movies. They can keep you attentive to the film the whole time. And when you look away, you get lost. That's wonderful. And that's what I like about this film, that the pacing is so well done that it sort of sets the stage for future films to come out afterwards, post-2008. Last week, we talked about opening sequences and scenes in a film with The Godfather 1. And by that, I mean, no one doesn't know. There isn't one person out there that if you mentioned or showed the opening sequence of The Godfather, minus showing them the title and all that stuff, they're going to say, oh, that's from Godfather Part 1. And then they show The Undertaker talking to Vito from in front. And it's like one of the greatest scenes of all time. That is the same for this sequence in the beginning of this film, where all the bank robbers are wearing the Joker mask with a fake Joker mask. And they're propelling from one building to another, going into the place, shooting a few people, robbing the money and all that stuff, getting to the bus or the Joker is at the end. You can't not think that that's one of the best scenes of a movie of all time. One that I think one of the top 15, 20 greatest scenes, opening scenes of all time, at least to some extent. And it's a great way to get someone hooked in because you're saying, who's this person? Who are these people walking through town with these weird masks on, these really dark and grungy looking suit and tie suits on? But that's the beautiful part about DC Comics, but also particularly Christopher Nolan's approach to this version of Batman. One of the things I chuckled about in this film, and it's sort of a, a, a subtle comedy attempt, is the bank manager in this film, he thinks he's hot shit, and he's taking out a sawed-off shotgun or whatever, his double-barrel shotgun, he's shooting around all the mass crusaders. Well, that's Batman, so I guess some of the criminals, the bank robbers in the Joker mask, shooting not at them, but around them. And then suddenly realizes at the end, He's out of bullets and then he gets shot in the leg and he's really in major pain. And I thought that was pretty funny because you have this guy coming in thinking he's going to save the day and solve this situation. Uh, an unequal fight of six to eight guys against one bank manager with a double barrel shotgun that maybe has six bullets in it. I mean, come on, you have to be realistic for that bank manager. But it's one of the funny parts of the film. And there are many more afterwards down the line in this production. Following suit in this beginning set of scenes in this film, or parts of the early set of the film, is how Joker comes off as not the main leader of his pack of criminals and bank robbers by being quiet, reserved, and ends up being him at the end, jumping into the bus before he gets rid of the last mass criminal and takes the money with him. And I thought that was very funny as well, because then he's like, oh, yeah, are you going to talk junk about me behind my back? All these guys are boom, 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 boom and we're going to get rid of all of you. That was pretty ingenious, if that's the correct word to say, about the way Dr. Christopher Nolan directed Heath Ledger and the overall writing of the script. Something that was also kind of interesting was Joker's approach, his fast approach that he took to taking over the crime world. I mean, no one took him seriously early on, particularly when they were having the vintage old school way of having a Zoom meeting with Lau on the TV screen at that back lot of a kitchen at some restaurant. And I thought that was interesting because he comes in and they're really struggling early on and before he gets involved. And then Joker comes in and he really takes him to the next level, really screwing over and creating anarchy for the city of Gotham. That was an interesting perspective as well. One of the things that made me smile, made my heart feel, I guess, a little warm to some extent was how ethically professional Lieutenant Gordon tries to seem and come off as compared to his men who seem a little off kilter a little to the dark side then when lieutenant gordon gets almost killed or people think he gets killed out during the ceremony for the former police commissioner his men seem to get a little bit more sketchy a little bit more darker under new authority new leadership 
And that's a nice piece. And especially of that film and that story where it becomes really dark and really anarchy, the more power that the Joker gets for himself and creates for himself throughout the length of the film. Another thing I like is, is, is how much of a buzzsaw the Joker is in the sense that the Chechen and the rest of the henchmen that he has both took over from the Chechen with growing and combining their forces is how the Joker doesn't operate on financial means and necessity for growth financially. So he just operates off-hinged, offset in terms of all the wires not connecting. He doesn't really care about anything. He could burn all the money like he did in the film. He doesn't really care because all he wants to do is cause pain psychologically and mentally and physically to some extent to Batman in Gotham City and watch it burn and take it over. And that was pretty cool in the film. And a moment of that is the sequence where after Rachel dies and the gasoline gets lit on fire and burns Harvey in the face to become Two-Face and he goes to the hospital, Joker turns around and is dressed up as a nurse and he makes some jokes at the expense of Harvey Dent's unfortunate pain. It's really evil and really annoying. Also very funny because it's like Joker, again, is unhinged. doesn't care about financial means, doesn't care about anybody except himself. He knows he can do it with Harvey Dent because now they lost the most important thing in his life. He now has him like Palm's hand, which is the next thing I want to talk about. It's sad because although you you hate, to some extent, Harvey Dent and the way he was written and his way he acts, you feel bad for him because his life's great. He's happy. But the one thing that makes him truly happy would be having Rachel as his wife. And he loses her when he should have been lost instead of vice versa. And he gave up. He didn't care. The show was decline, steep decline into insanity, but also anarchy and villainy was brilliantly done, not just acting by Aaron Eckhart, a wonderful actor, but also written beautifully by Christopher and Jonathan Nolan. One of the last things I should say, or actually the last thing I'll say about what I like about this film is the ability Christian Bale has as an actor in the sense of how he shows how conflicted Bruce Wayne is at the end of the film, of wanting to leave this life, telling Rachel that if I end this life or leave this life as Batman, like we promised, you'll come back to me. And she was tormented about that. Because of course she wanted to come back to that life with Bruce Wayne. But to some extent, she truly did love Harvey, but couldn't fully commit to him like she wanted to with Bruce, but she couldn't go to Bruce because she was still with Harvey. And to see him so willing to give up that life for her, and then she dies, and then he can't give it up because then Harvey turns to evil, and now he's got to worry even more about the Joker. This tells you that not only is Christian Bale a beautifully wonderful actor, if that makes any sense in terms of word choice, but also shows you the ability he has of putting forth this role and showcasing why he's one of the best of all time, not just performing as Batman, but in terms of all the other roles he's been able to have in his career. Now, unfortunately, not everything's perfect. Not even Star Wars Revenge of the Sith is perfect for me, because like all good things, there are some negatives, and this film has a few negatives that I'll tell you about right now. Although, once I look back at it right now and watching the film a few times like I did, I don't fully believe it, but to an extent, I still do believe it a great deal because I just, I didn't like how Bruce was purposely trying to ruin the relationship between Harvey and Rachel because although Rachel can commit to Harvey, I do believe at the end of the day that they were really good for each other, if not perfect for each other, because I feel as though Rachel was only to Bruce for the high stuff that he had to offer in terms of life, fancy cars, fancy living, fancy dinners, fancy outfits, fancy meals, all that stuff, the fancy life, that's I feel as though she only cared about in terms of Bruce. And to see him go out and purposely ruin that just so he could score one, it wasn't right to me. Kind of cringe to some extent. Actually, really was cringe to an extent, if I can be honest with you. If I could keep it a stack with you, as the kids say, 
I didn't like that part. I thought it was very cringe. Although I didn't like Coleman Reese, the character overall, it would have been cool to see him, maybe not more in the film, but to see what would have happened if he revealed the true identity of Batman and why they were spending so much money on this nested away aspect of Wayne Enterprises and all this money they were dumping into that section of the company. To see him actually commit to saying who Batman truly was would have been interesting to see the anarchy that came from that in terms of the other anarchy that was already building up and bubbling in Gotham at that point. But we'll never know. One thing that kind of confused me that I didn't really like, to be honest with you, is how in the previous Batman movie with Christian Bale, Killian Murphy's character of Scarecrow was the main villain, if not the villain in that film. He's in the whole time, of course, the arch enemy of Batman for that point. And then the second film, he's in the beginning and he's made to look like a wimp all of a sudden, like he's nothing. It's it's like, what? I, I, I don't get that. If you make the knockoff Batmans that Joker is putting on camera to show Gotham City what can happen if any more serious anarchy is done at the hands of Joker, they make them look cringe or weird or like Wish.com's version of Batman. But then you have Scarecrow look like that. It just didn't sit right with me, to tell you the truth. One thing I would have liked to have seen, and this is the last one I'll talk about in terms of what I dislike, fortunately, is I would have liked to have seen more of Lucius Fox in this film and less of the cringe dry romance of Bruce Wayne and Rachel Dawes and Rachel Dawes and Harvey Dent and sort of the weird, uncomfortable attempt of a romance between Harvey Dent and Bruce Wayne. It just didn't sit right with me and I would have liked to have just seen more of Lucius Fox because he was a really cool character at the end of the day in this film. And I hope when I watch the next film, this trilogy that he's in it more, <laughs> cross the fingers, but that's all I can say about what I disliked about the film. Overall, the film was really well done. There's not more I can say that I don't like about it. And with that being said, we've come to the end of this review for my final thoughts. Even though this film is a sprint more than a marathon, that's why Christopher Nolan has become not just one of the greatest directors of this current year or the last few years, but one of the greatest directors of all time in the history of cinema. This film helped catapult him and particularly... Christian Bale into another stratosphere as an actor, and I'm so glad that they were part of this. This film has plenty of action, plenty of suspense, plenty of drama. It has you on the edge of your seat the whole time. As I said, if you're not paying attention for a few minutes and you look back, you get lost, confused, and you have to replay it and you have to lose time on doing that. If you haven't seen this masterpiece, I recommend you do because it's one of those bucket list items you have to see before you pass on or you grow too old for this film. Then again, you do have to take two and a half hours out of your day to see it, but it's certainly worth it. That's why, ranking this film, I give it an 8.5 out of 10 on the Diamond Dave scale. And with that, I say this simply put. If you enjoyed this review, do us a favor by subscribing or following, leaving a like, clicking that heart button, turning on post notifications so you're updated with new episodes of the podcast, sharing with your friends and family to help this podcast grow to the top of the rankings that I possibly can, like my other one, and follow Instagram at Critiquing with Car. So you know all about news for the podcast and many other tidbits for the show. With that being said, till next time when we see each other again at the theaters, take care of my film freaks and movie lovers. Hey.